Today's sermon comes from Isaiah chapter 36, verses 1 through 10, verses 13 through 20, and chapter 37, verses 5 through 7. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem with a great army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And there came out to him Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. And the Rabshakeh said to them, Say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, On what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust, that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you are trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able on your part to set riders on them. How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Moreover, is it without the Lord that I have come up against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Then the Rapshika stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah, hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, the Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine and each one of his own fig tree. And each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own land a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Beware lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying, the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand, that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? When the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, Say to your master, thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard, with which the young men of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him, so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land." The late pastor and writer Eugene Peterson describes uh, the walk that he was taking through Yellowstone National Park with his wife and three children. And this is what he writes about the experience. As my family and I were walking in a mountain meadow in Yellowstone Park, there was a little boy of four or five 
about 30 yards out in the meadow picking exquisite alpine flowers. It is against the rules to pick flowers in national parks. I was outraged. I yelled at him, don't pick the flowers. He just stood, wide-eyed, innocent, and terrified. He dropped the flowers and started crying. You can imagine what happened next. My wife and my children, especially my children, were all over me. Daddy, what you did was far worse than what he did. He was just picking a few flowers and you yelled. You scared him. You ruined him. He is probably going to have to go for counseling when he's 40 years old. Now, we laugh at a story like that. But how many of us have needed or need counseling from something that was said to us as a child? I remember as a child several times hearing hurtful words because kids can be mean, right? So can adults. But I remember as a child those moments where I was mocked or I was insulted or I was made fun of, and I remember the counsel that I received from well-meaning individuals that said to me, Sticks and stones may break your bones, but words will never hurt. Now, that's a slogan that is supposed to help you in moments when you're mocked or insulted or slandered. It's a slogan that basically says words don't really have power. It's the very question that is raised in verse five of Isaiah 36. Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In other words, do you really think that words have power? Is the question being raised? Sticks and stones may break your bones, but words will never hurt. Couldn't be farther from the truth. Because words have incredible power. Why? Because we are made in the image of God. A God whose word is very powerful. A God who spoke this word, this world into existence in Genesis 1. He spoke and the world came to be. We're made in his image, which is why words are so powerful. We're in this section of Isaiah where the promised Assyrian invasion is at hand. The king of Assyria has taken all the fortified cities of Judah. There's one city left, and it's Jerusalem. And he is now at Jerusalem ready to attack it. So he sends his Rabshakeh, which was just a high-ranking military officer. It was his spokesman. He sends his spokesman to, the, to King Hezekiah, who's the king of Judah in Jerusalem. 
And what I want you to notice is where this meeting takes place. Verse two. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. This is the same place that Isaiah stood years earlier with King Ahaz, Hezekiah's father, calling him to a place of trust in God. Ahaz refused. Ahaz, years earlier, in this same exact place, refused God's word. And so now the question becomes, same place, same crisis, how would Hezekiah respond? Whose word would he trust? What word would have power over Hezekiah in this moment of crisis that he finds himself in as a king? To answer this, because this is the question, it's the same question of you. Your crisis might look different. In fact, every crisis is very unique in the human heart. But whatever the crisis may be, the question is the same. What word has power over your life? What word has power over your life in the midst of your crisis? Now, to answer this, we're going to look at the two broad categories of words, the word of man, which is the word of people, and the word of God. Let's start with the word of man. The word of man comes to us in different forms. The beginning of Ephesians chapter two describes three forms in which we receive the word of man. In the beginning of Ephesians two, it's, it's describing what shapes and influences our lives, and specifically there before we come to Christ, but then after coming to Christ, we still struggle with these same shaping influences. And so in Ephesians 2, it talks about following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, which is the devil, and the passions of our flesh. That's where we get the phrase, the world, the flesh, and the devil that sin and evil wages war against us through those three words, the word of the world, the word of the flesh, and the word of the devil. And what's interesting is all three of those words are present in Isaiah chapter 36. In the king of Assyria's message to Hezekiah, all three of those words are present. So we start with the word of the world. This would be the word of the culture. You say, where is that? Where is, is this word in, king, in the king of Assyria's message to King Hezekiah? Look at verse 18. Beware lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? And then verse 20. Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand, that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand. Now, what's the message here? All these other nations around you tried religion. They all cried out to their gods and sacrificed and prayed and, and did their dances, whatever they could do to try to get these gods to protect them. And guess what? It didn't work. Because we attacked them all and we've taken them all. So what do you, why do you think religion's gonna work for you? 
You've tried religion and you've failed. It goes beyond religion though. Verse six, king of Assyria says, behold, you're trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff. He says, you've tried a political alliance and that failed you. You've tried religion, you've tried politics, and neither have worked. Now, what's the message here? What's the message being spoken? It's the message of pragmatism. And you say, what's pragmatism? It's actually a belief system. It's a way of life. What pragmatism says is this. Trust in whatever works to give you what you want. If it works, stick with it. If it doesn't work, move on. So if religion works for you, stick with it. But if religion fails, move on. If politics works for you, stick with it. But as soon as it fails you, move on. Pragmatism is the message of you just trust what works in the moment. And that's the message that the king of Assyria was delivering to Hezekiah. These haven't worked, so you better figure out something that works. That's the word of our culture. Sadly, though, oftentimes it's the word of the church, that we just do what works. And the problem is there's nothing pragmatic about Christianity. Jesus ended up beaten and bloodied on a cross. Jesus didn't have a pragmatic ministry that resulted in blessing for him. He ended up on the cross. There's nothing pragmatic about Christianity. This is exactly the message that I believe Jesus is delivering in the parable of the sower. When Jesus is describing the different responses that people had to him, the different responses to the gospel, he describes four soils in the parable of the sower. Three of those soils are pragmatic responses to the gospel, which is why they don't last. If you come to Jesus pragmatically, you won't stay with Jesus for long. The first soil in the, in the parable of the sower, the first seed dies because it doesn't work intellectually. The text actually says that the, the first seed doesn't sprout or it dies because the person doesn't understand the gospel. The gospel's not understandable. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't square with science. It's not reasonable. And so that person, because it doesn't work intellectually, will move on to the next thing that works intellectually. The second soil in the parable of the sower doesn't work emotionally. It says that the person responds to Jesus initially with great joy, but as soon as hard times come, as soon as suffering hits and the joy fades, they move on to something else than Jesus that'll work emotionally. The third soil doesn't work financially. It says the person comes to Jesus, and when they realize that Jesus isn't going to make them rich, 
but there's the riches to be found in the world, they, they leave Jesus and they go to find something that will cause them to prosper financially. Only the fourth soil, fourth soil lasts and bears fruit because the fourth response to the gospel and the parable of the sower is not a pragmatic response. It's not a response of, will this work for me? The question that you have to ask, and it's a simple question, but why do you follow Jesus? And, and if you're not yet in Christ and you're investigating Christianity, the question would be, why would I follow Jesus? Simple question, but one that is worth meditating on deeply. Because is Jesus a means to some greater end? Emotionally, financially, relationally, socially? Or is Jesus the end for you? Word of the world. Second, Let's look at the second form of this word of man, the word of the flesh. Now, where do we see the word of the flesh in the message of the king of Assyria to Hezekiah? Look at verses 16 to 17. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine and each one of his own fig tree and each one you will drink the water of his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Peace, security, comfort. King of Assyria says, if you trust me, I'm gonna take care of you. You trust me, I'm gonna give you really good food. And I'm going to give you a great plot of land. The temptation we all face, our flesh craves comfort. We love comfort. It's why we avoid pain at all costs. It's why when we're in the midst of pain, our natural instinct is to, to move away from it because we desire comfort. As the Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Cranmer, bravely advanced the gospel during the English Reformation. But then in 1553, Mary became queen, and she had Cranmer arrested and thrown in prison. And it was there in prison that he watched out his prison window and watched two of his good friends and fellow reformers, Hugh Lattimore and Nicholas Ridley, burn to death at the stake because they had been arrested as well. And as he watched this moment with Hugh and Nicholas burning at the stake, it was unforgettable, unforgettable because before they were burned at the stake, this is what Hugh Latimer said to encourage Nicholas Ridley. He said, be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall on this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust, shall never be put out. Now, Cranmer watched that. He heard that. Sadly, he didn't play the man. He caved in. Government 
agents brainwashed him into signing recantations. Basically, he signed documents rejecting Jesus Christ, rejecting his faith. But because of signing those documents, he was released from prison. And for several weeks, he could enjoy a comfortable life again. But they arrested him again. They brought him back in prison. And it was there that he signed more recantations. He signed more documents rejecting Jesus Christ and his faith in Christ in hopes that he would be released, that he could enjoy a comfortable life again. Question for you and me that probably won't face being burned at the stake. But the question is, Does comfort or the word of comfort and the word of convenience rule your life? Does the word of comfort and the word of convenience, is it numbing your affections for Jesus? That's the word of the flesh that comes at us. You've got the word of the world. You've got the word of the flesh doing battle. And there's the third, which is the word of the devil that does battle. Now, where do we see this word of the devil message in the king of Assyria's message to King Hezekiah? Look at verse 10, what the king of Assyria says. Moreover, is it without the Lord that I have come up against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, now understand, this is the king of Assyria. This isn't Hezekiah. This is the king of Assyria. Doesn't worship God, doesn't believe in God. The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. The messenger of the king of Assyria knew enough about Israel's religion to basically parrot it to speak words that were sounded very familiar, but to distort the word of God in delivering that message. It's very similar to what we see in Genesis 3 in the garden when the devil says to Eve, did God really say? Then we go to verse 17. Again, king of Assyria speaking here through his messenger. Until I come and take you away to a land like your own, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. God had promised his people peace and security and land. In fact, this message from the king of Assyria is almost identical to God's message to his children. He's, he's, he's making a very similar promise to God's children. And what we learn here is one of the devil's tactics. And that is to offer you a blessing that looks very much like the blessing of God. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen 14 says, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Which means that the devil doesn't just disguise his person, but he actually disguises his activities. So what the devil can do is to present sin 
as things that aren't really that bad, or sometimes as things that are actually good. Now you say, okay, I hear that, but what does that look like? What does it look like for the devil to present sin as things that really aren't that bad or maybe even good? Let me give you a few examples. Men are tempted to give free reign to their bad tempers when this sin is portrayed as merely exercising firm leadership as the head of one's family. Or women are tempted to nag and manipulate their husbands when they are deceived into regarding such behaviors as only encouraging their spouses to do what's right. Or children are tempted to dishonor and disrespect their parents when they think they are only exercising their God-given rights as individuals. Believers are tempted to indulge in pornography when Satan persuades them that they are merely fulfilling normal sexual desires in a way that doesn't hurt anyone. Impatience is justified as a determination to get things accomplished. When we're argumentative in religious discussions, we're tempted to justify our lack of kindness because we are defending the truth. Or an employee is tempted to steal from his employer when he regards his theft of money, goods, or time as a just compensation for the employer's alleged injustices. How is the disguised word of the devil exerting power over you? We've looked at the word of the culture, which was pragmatism. Does it work? We've looked at the word of the flesh, which is just comfort, whatever it takes. We've looked at the word of the devil, which is that almost parroting God's words or presenting sin as something that's not so bad. Now we arrive at the word of God. Right? What word has power over your life? I think we all would resonate and say that the word of the world, the word of the flesh, the word of the devil at different times and different places seems to have tremendous influence over my life. All of us would confess to that. But there's another word, and it's the word of God. I asked at the beginning of this sermon, how would Hezekiah respond? He's in this, this place of crisis. How would he respond to it? What word would he trust? What word would have power over him? Would it be the word of the king of Assyria that we've just explored in all its various forms, or would it be the word of God? Well, Hezekiah, in the beginning of chapter 37, turns to Isaiah the prophet. And by turning to Isaiah the prophet, he was turning to the word of God. It would be the equivalent of you in, in your crisis today turning to the word of God. He turned to the prophet of God, to Isaiah. 
What did God tell him? What did he hear? Look at verses six to seven of chapter 37. Thus says the Lord, do not be afraid because of the words you have heard with which the young men of the king of Assyria have reviled me, mocked me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. Two important observations here. Number one, the king of Assyria and his young men have been mocking God and have been saying that God can't deliver Jerusalem. Second observation, and this is the really important one. The king of Assyria is defeated by the very thing that he said had no power. You'll go back to verse five in, in chapter 36, when the king of Assyria says, do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? That was the king of Assyria saying, words don't have power. Why are you trusting in words? What's interesting is how did God send the king of Assyria away from Jerusalem and back home? By a word, by a rumor. The mere rumor of a word sent the king of Assyria packing and heading away from Jerusalem. The very word of God that was mocked became the very word that defeated the enemy. Now, does that sound familiar? John 1.14 says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The very word of God put on flesh in Jesus. And do you remember when Jesus, the word of God, hung on the cross? You remember what was said to him as he hung on the cross? He was taunted. He was mocked. They said, if you're really God, then why don't you come down and save your people? The cross was the Roman symbol of weakness and defeat. That's why every criminal was hung on a cross. It wasn't just the way of death. It proclaimed a loud message to everyone watching about who was in charge. And the cross was that symbol of weakness and defeat. And so anyone who hung on a cross was weak and defeated and finished and done. And yet that very cross, that very Roman symbol of weakness and defeat became the power by which Jesus, the word of God, defeated the world, the flesh, and the devil. Do mere words, are mere words strategy and power for war, for battle? The answer is yes. But not just a mere word. It's the words of the risen Christ that have power.
It's the words of the risen Christ that have incredible power. In the days of the Russian Revolution, during the Stalin years, the Soviet state was attempting to stamp out Christianity and convert everyone to atheism. It was during this time in Russia that there was this very popular Russian comedian. And he had put together a stage act that became just incredibly popular through Russia as he would go around and do this act. But he would play the part of a drunken Orthodox priest. He would wear wine-stained robes. And, and during this comedy act, he would recite the Beatitudes, which were part of a beautiful liturgy in the Orthodox Church. And in fact, it was, they were Beatitudes that this comedian actually had learned as a child in the church. But he absolutely put God's word, the Beatitudes spoken by Jesus, and made an absolute parody out of them. So instead of saying, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, He'd say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for vodka. And instead of blessed are the peacemakers, he would say, blessed are the cheesemakers, while he stumbled around on the stage playing this drunken Orthodox priest. The Russian officials loved it because he was working to convert people to atheism and make worship sound and seem absolutely ridiculous. But then something happened. One night, as he was getting up to do his comedy routine, instead of saying the distorted mockery beatitudes, what he had learned as a child came out of him. He started to actually quote the beatitudes. And as he was quoting the real Beatitudes, he started listening to what he was quoting. And by the time he got to the final Beatitude, he fell on his knees on the stage and began to weep. He had to be walked off the stage to never mock worship again. He probably got thrown in a Soviet labor camp. But he experienced a spiritual freedom that no prison could take away. The word of God is powerful. The words of the risen Christ are powerful. It's the words of the risen Christ that have the power to silence your guilt The words of the risen Christ have the power to silence your shame. The words of the risen Christ have the power to silence the critique of others. The words of the risen Christ have the power to silence the accusations of the devil. The words of the risen Christ have the power to give you the courage you need to do what Christ calls you to do, regardless of the consequences, good or bad. 
take you back to the story of Thomas Cranmer. And before I do, let me point out something that's really powerful in this text. The word trust appears seven times in verses four through 10 of chapter 36. And the word trust there is a word that means to throw oneself down and to lie on the floor. Trust is a very deep, deep dependence. Seven times in verses four to 10. The word deliver appears seven times in verses 13 to 21 of chapter 36. The message is clear. Whose word will you trust to deliver you from your crisis? Whose word will you trust? Back to the story of Thomas Cranmer. He had washed out his prison window. His two friends get burned to, to death at the stake. He was back in prison a second time, signing documents of rejecting Christ and his faith in Christ, hoping he would be set free so he could live a comfortable life again. And then something happened in that prison. The words of the risen Christ became louder and more real than the words of the governmental authorities. And so on the day of his execution, he sat there and listened to a two-hour sermon at the church denouncing Thomas Cranmer as a heretic. And everyone expected after that two-hour sermon of him being denounced, expected him to stand up and own the error of his ways and continue his rejection of Jesus Christ. But he didn't. He stood firm. And he testified to Jesus Christ. Hours later, he was burned to death at the stake. Now, that's not a crisis that any of you will probably ever face but you have your own crisis. And crisis is crisis. It's unique to you. But whatever your crisis is, the question is the same. Whose word are you going to trust to deliver you? What word has power over your life? Let's pray. Father, we confess to you before you what you already know, that the word of man, the word of this world, the culture, the word of our flesh, the word of the devil has so much influence over us. And so often, Father, we bow the knee. We bow the knee to the word of others, to the word of our flesh, to the word of the devil, 
And yet, Father, we believe that your word has power. We see your word becoming flesh, which is what we celebrate in this Advent season. That your word became flesh and dwelt among us. And Jesus, we see you on the cross. And as we read the account of the cross, we see the mockery and we see the reviling. And yet it was your very work on the cross that has delivered us from the power of the flesh and the world and the devil. Father, we ask that by the power of your spirit, we would bow the knee to the word of your son, Jesus. Jesus, that your words would become louder and more real than any word around us right now that's resonating. There are some in this room that are in the midst of this crisis where the word of this world or the flesh or the death is loud. Jesus, would your word silence those other words? That we would hear your word that we would meditate on it deeply and that it would change us, it would transform us, that we would see victory in this battle we face against sin and evil. Father, as we sing now words to you, would we sing them loudly? Would we sing them from the depth of our hearts as we worship you? We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.